morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. It's, it's good to be back with you all this morning. And we're in Acts the 13th. And Paul and Barnabas have just been sent out from Antioch, and they're on their first missionary journey. Last week we saw them in Cyprus, and today they're moving on from Cyprus. So we have a lot of ground to cover, so let's just go ahead and get started in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So right at the beginning of our text, we see them setting sail from Paphos to Perga, and there's a couple of interesting things here that I want to note. First, Luke describes the group as Paul and his companions, indicating that Paul has emerged as the leader of this group. Secondly, Luke tells us that at this point, John left and went back to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly why John left, but we know that, 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 that Paul might have been a little salty because of it, because it's going to come up later in Acts. So let's keep going. Verse 14. But when they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So leaving Perga, they arrive at a city called Antioch. And this is different from the Antioch that we've been talking about. This one is in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is a peninsula in Western Asia. Most of it would be considered what we, can, what we call modern-day Turkey. So they called it Antioch and Pisidia to distinguish it from the other one, sort of like we are called Village Church Irvine to be distinguished from the other one. On, on, on a Sabbath day, they, they arrive in Antioch. They go into the synagogue. Paul has a conviction that the gospel should go to the Jews first and then from there spread out to the Gentiles. So he goes into the synagogue. And because this was a Sabbath in the synagogue, we have a pretty good idea how things probably went. First, they would have recited the Shema, beginning with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then there would have been a prayer. Then there would have been reading from the law and the prophets. And then there would have been a sermon or a word of encouragement. Someone would have been asked to preach. And in this case, we see that the person that they asked to preach was Paul. And what follows is Paul's first recorded sermon in Acts. And you can divide it into three big movements, with the first being in verses 16 through 25. And so for this morning, we're going to spend a lot of our time just hearing how Paul unpacks and proclaims Jesus in the gospel. Because there are things here that are encouraging and instructive and corrective for us. Now, as a reminder, the audience that's hearing these things are Jewish or very familiar with the Jewish religion and culture. And so the place Paul starts would have been a very familiar one to them. Let's read it, verses 16 through 25. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of the people Israel chose our fathers and made, them, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. 
And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified, I found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own, my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised before his coming. John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he says, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Now, in the fourth through sixth grade class, we get the kids together um, once a month on a Wednesday night for pizza and games and a lesson. And a few weeks ago, we set aside some time to teach them some basic Bible study methods. Right? Teach them some skills, some things to do as they're studying their Bible so they can hopefully un- better understand it. And one of the things we told them to look for as they studied the scriptures were repeated phrases and ideas. And what we have in the text for this morning is a perfect example of that. Because right from the outset of Paul's sermon, there's this repetition that almost functions as a rhythm or a cadence. And he uses it to drive the point home. God or a reference to God is made in every verse from verse 17 to 22 as Paul recites Israel's history. And this shows me that Paul is going out of his way not only to show God as the good father but also the caretaker of his people and as he's directing them throughout history. In the the theater of history, God is on center stage. This is made clear by how Paul recaps their history. Israel didn't just have judges. God gave them judges. The Israelites didn't just have a lot of babies. God made them great. Israelites didn't just move into the promised land. God plowed the way. Saul didn't just stop being king. It was God that removed him. This is a way of looking at history in light of the sovereign God that directs it. And there's a word for this. It's called God's providence. God's providence over the lives and well-being of his people as he moves and acts throughout history towards his good purposes. Now, this isn't only true on the grand scale of world history, but also on a personal scale of our own history as he guides and directs the things around us. This is what we're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, where God is said to work all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, there's a lot of mystery with this. But I still think we can read our history in the same way Paul read Israel's. My wife and I didn't just move down to Orange County. God moved us here. We didn't just start attending the village church. We were placed here. We didn't just have four kids. God gave them to us. And I know what what, what some of you might be thinking, and I'm well aware of what I'm saying. Not all of our history is good. In fact, some of it is really, really bad. What of God's providence then? Last year, my dad died of brain cancer. And we watched him slowly lose himself. The cancer was so brutal that we had to break the news to him that he had an incurable brain cancer several times because he kept forgetting. Each time fresh. I was in the room holding his hand when he stopped breathing. 
And leading up to the year anniversary, I was talking to another guy about it. Just kind of recapping everything and just kind of sharing my heart. And he asked me a question that I was ashamed of the fact that I had never asked my question, myself that question before. He asked, where was God in all of this and what was he doing? And he wasn't asking it in a way that was accusing God of negligence or evil, but he was asking it in a way that reminded me that even this dark part of my history was not devoid of the providence of God. That he, even in this, he was there. And even in this, he was working. I think he was working, showing me the ugliness of death so that I can rejoice more deeply in Christ's victory over the grave. I think he was telling me and teaching me to make sure that I tell my kids I love them because one day they won't be able to hear it from me in person. I think he was showing me and teaching me that one day I'll be laying in that bed. And on that day, so many things that I think are important will not be important at all. Don't, don't get me wrong. I don't know all that God is and was doing. But now looking back, I think I know some of it. Now some of you here have walked through or are currently walking through things that are much deeper and much darker than that. And I want to remind you that, that even this part of your life is not outside the providence of God. In this passage, Paul shows us a picture of how God is working through history towards a purpose. That purpose shown in verse 23. The purpose of fulfilling the promise of sending a Savior. And we know now, today, that God is still working through history, uh, as Ephesians 1 tells us, to reconcile all things in Christ. Now this lays foundation of purpose and direction over everything in our lives, even the darkest parts. And knowing there's creates opportunities to see God's goodness in new ways. The way John Piper says this is so good that I'm not even trying to say it any better. He said, when we hear God say he works all things according to the counsel of his will, and then we see him doing this very thing countless times in his word and in his world, we are given a worldview with stunning implications. Everything, absolutely everything relates to God. As R.C. Sproul would, say, would often say, there are no maverick molecules, nor are there any maverick athletes or actors or singers or presidents or scholars or street people. All are in the sway of God's all-pervasive things and all persons fit into God's all-embracing plan. This is where ultimate meaning is found. If we are to understand anything at the most important level, we start with this reality. God created the world holds it in existence and governs all of it for his purposes. Everything relates to everything because everything relates to God. The knowledge of this and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Where this is denied, all knowledge is enveloped in a cloud of folly. Where it is affirmed, the possibilities of profound, amazing, beautiful, and helpful insights abound. Part of the power of looking over our history in light of God is that you start to see God's purpose and goodness and wisdom and glory where you may not have seen it before, both in world history and in our history. 
Paul uses this reality as the jumping off point, showing that the God that was working then is the God working now by sending us the promised Savior. And with verses 24 and 24 or 25, there's a transition from the past to the present. And with this, we'll transition from the first movement of the sermon to the second. Let's read it. Verses 26 through 31. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And although they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. In verse 23, Paul said that God fulfilled his promise by sending a Savior, and he elaborates that on verse, in verse 26 when he says that to them that it's been given them the message of this salvation. The message of this salvation is the message of the promise Savior. Now, Paul unpacks it in a structured and maybe a familiar fashion. Scholars call it the kerygma, which is the Greek word for proclamation. It's the standard apostolic formula of preaching Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, lived a blameless life and yet was still crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate. He was buried and was raised and was seen by witnesses. We saw the same formula used by Peter in Acts chapter 2. And it will return later in Scripture, most notably in 1 Corinthians 15. Because the point that needs to be made is that when Paul is preaching the gospel, he is no innovator. He's not trying to reinvent it in new ways. Showing us that the power of the gospel is not in the man, it's in the message. It's not in who's preaching, it's in who is being preached. We've got a couple more. It's not in the one saying, it's in the one saving. It's not in the one preaching, it's in the one reaching. Down from heaven to us. You can pick one and tweet it. But, but don't miss it. The preaching of the gospel is a declaration of facts. These are events that actually happen. The gospel is the good news of something God has accomplished. And this separates Christianity from everything else. It's not a religion based off of self-actualization or, or self-fulfillment or a new set of ideology or a new set of ethics. Christianity is first our salvation accomplished by God on a foundation of historical events, and to preach it as anything other than or less than that, it empties it of its power. Our faith is built on facts, facts that Paul says in Romans 1.16 are the power of God. These facts are attested to in Scripture, and that's where Paul goes next, verses 20, 32 through 37. And we bring you the good news, that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also was written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way. I'll give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also another song, in, an, in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served his purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
but he whom God raised up did not speak corruption. These scriptures tie together the Old Testament promise of a Savior to their fulfillment in Jesus. This is the through line that Paul uses to bring everything together. The promise that's in view here is the promise God made to David called the Davidic Covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find David fresh off of victory in war, wanting to build a home for God. Because up to this point, God's presence has dwelt in the tabernacle or tent, and it moved as the people moved. Now David wants to set up someplace permanent, a temple. God speaks through the prophet Nathan and makes a series of promises. God would give David land, there would be rest from his enemies, and that David's son would rule after him and he would be the one to build the temple. Now all of these promises were fulfilled in David's lifetime or shortly thereafter with David's son Solomon. But there was one more promise that God made, 2 Samuel, um, 2 Samuel 7, 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The emphasis of this problem, of this promise, is that it spoke of eternity. And it's significant to the Jewish people because it helped shape this anticipation for the coming king from the line of David that would rule forever. The Old Testament is loaded with anticipation of this promised king through David's lineage, and it's the backdrop that Paul is preaching against. The audience was well aware of the promises God made to their ancestors. They were waiting for the son of David that would righteously rule God's kingdom forever. And knowing that, Paul literally says in verse 32 that the good news that he's bringing them is that God fulfilled this promise. Paul is showing them that the full realization of their religion is in Jesus. He lays down three scriptural proofs to the resurrection to prove that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 55-3, and Psalm 16-10, respectively. And these all collectively demonstrate that because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he has been inaugurated king of Israel. He will receive the eternal kingdom promised and is the promised Messiah. We know these texts aren't talking about David because David died and then stayed dead. But Jesus didn't. The resurrection of Jesus is, the, is proof that he is who they were waiting for. And this is the end of the second movement of the sermon. And then he transitioned into the third and final movement, the appeal. Verses 38 through 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone believes Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, after all of the history and the promise, promises fulfilled in Jesus, Paul brings it all down to a personal application and appeal for them to accept the benefits made available to them in Christ. The first benefit being the forgiveness of sin. Through faith in Jesus, we receive a pardon on all of our sin, our past, present, and future sin. No matter how dark or how deep or how shameful it is, it is all washed away by the blood. Second benefit is freedom from everything we cannot be freed from by the law. Now, something worthy to note here is that the word for freed is the same word that's more commonly translated as justified. So essentially what Paul is saying is that we are not justified by works of the law, rather we are justified by our faith in Jesus. Now keep in mind who Paul is preaching to. These people have built their lives around keeping the law. 
working to keep it so that they can make themselves good enough or acceptable to God. Something Paul is saying can never be done. They could never work their way into God's favor. Paul, in this context, is showing where their religious system came up short. The fatal flaw in their system is the fatal flaw in every system. Because every other religious system outside of Christianity puts emphasis on me doing something good enough to be good enough for God. And that's where everything falls short. And this is at the center of the gospel. By faith, my sins, by faith are my sins forgiven, and by faith, Christ, Christ's sacrifice makes me righteous before God. That's what Paul preached, and it's powerful in its purity and simplicity. And this presentation of the gospel by Paul forces us to reconsider how we preach the gospel ourselves. I remember going to a, 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 men's, a Christian men's conference when I was saved for maybe one or two years. And there was this really, really popular pastor preaching. And at the climax of his sermon, in a crowded audit, auditorium, he started yelling, is your marriage broken? Come to Jesus. Have your kids gone wayward? Come to Jesus. Did you lose your job? Come to Jesus. And I remember looking around, and guys were literally running down the stairs of the auditorium to the front of the stage. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's how you preach the gospel. And now looking back on it, I cringe. Because the gospel that was being preached was come to Jesus and have all your problems fixed. And I wonder... Of all those men that ran down to the stage that morning, how many of them walked away six months later because their marriage was still a train wreck? And their kids were still gone. And they still didn't have a job. How many of them walked away thinking that the gospel didn't work for them? Now, don't, don't get me wrong. God can work in us by his Holy Spirit to improve our marriages. God can draw our kids to himself. God can meet our needs through things and the people around us. But that's not the point. All of that's secondary. All of that's lesser. What was impressed on my soul when I read Paul's sermon is the question, have we missed it? In our preaching, have, are we missing the main point? The primary offer of the gospel is that in Jesus is blood-bought sacrifice and the freedom from the consequences that we justly deserve for our sin. So how about instead of come to Jesus because your marriage is broken, we preach come to Jesus because we're all guilty. We preach come to Jesus because we've all sinned in thought and deed and word. We preach come to Jesus because we all stand fully deserving of the just wrath from a holy God. But in love and mercy, God sent his son Jesus to stand in our place, to take our punishment on the cross and offer us deliverance from the righteous judgment that we deserve. So that he can turn to us, he can turn to me, he can turn to you. Those who place their trust in him, he can turn to them and say, perfect, spotless, righteous mind. How about you come to Jesus for that? And then we'll work on your marriage. And then we'll pray and we'll weep over your children. And we'll work to figure out your finances. 
The blessings we have in Christ are far and wide, and we should preach them, remind ourselves and each other of them consistently. But they are secondary to the forgiveness of sin and freedom from guilt. Because even there, these things don't terminate in themselves. They don't end in just an avoidance of punishment. My, my three-year-old is a tough kid. We play fight sometimes, and then sometimes I just punch him in the stomach just to remind him who's alpha. <laughs> he, he, he tries to flex on me. <laughs> One morning he got mad at me when I started to put a frozen waffle in the toaster to warm it up for him. He grabbed me and says, no, I eat it cold. It's like, okay, Bear Grylls, savage. I love that dude. He, he's super shady, but I love him. A few weeks ago, I caught him sneaking candy when he wasn't supposed to, pillaging the, the Halloween spoils. I took him aside, and I kneeled down so we were eye to eye. And I just started narrating his sin back to him, showing what he did, why it was wrong. And I know he started to understand because as I was talking to him, I saw tears starting to well up in his eyes. And I told him, hey, buddy, because of your disobedience, you deserve to get punished, right? And he just nodded and said, yeah. And I said to him, I said, but this time I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you mercy. And you aren't going to get in trouble. He was crying. And I expected that to make him stop crying. So I said, hey, dude, like, what, what's wrong? Why, why are you crying? I just told you that you're not going to get punished for the things that you did wrong. Still crying, couldn't get any words out. So I grabbed him by the shoulders, and I looked him in the eyes and said, son, I love you. I forgive you. I'm not mad at you. And just like that, tears stopped. Because he... Even at three years old, didn't want to just avoid punishment. He wanted to be reconciled. He wanted a restoration of our relationship. The forgiveness, freedom, justification in Jesus not only save us from punishment, they end us, end with us enjoying a restored relationship with God. That's the beauty of the gospel in its purity and its simplicity. That's what we preach. But there's a warning. This good news forces a response. And in this case, a non-response is still a response. Let's read it. Verses 40 through 41. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. This is a quote from Habakkuk 1.5, and in it, God is warning his people of impending judgment. Applied here, it's with the same intent. Paul is warning the audience that a non-response to the good news of Christ leaves them under pending judgment of God for their sin. Same is true for us today. The gospel, as good as it is, forces a response. And in this case, a non-response is still a response. The writer of Hebrews asked the question this way, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation?
Keep going. Verses 42 to 43. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The people were intrigued by Paul's sermon, and he got invited back the next week to continue preaching. Many of those, who, many of those in the audience followed Paul and Barnabas, and it says that they urged them to continue in the grace of God. Of God, or to hold fast to the grace of God in the gospel. Now, this is interesting for, for two reasons. First, it seems to indicate that, that some of the people believe because you can't hold fast to something that you haven't already received. The second reason is that this is interesting is because of who Paul is saying this to. Remember, he's in Antioch of Pisidia, it's on the coast of Asia Minor. Now, I didn't mention this earlier. But this Antioch is in the province called Galatia. And it's widely held that the letter to the Galatians was written to the churches Paul visited on this missionary journey. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Galatians, this should attract your attention. Because continuing in the grace of God was exactly the problem Paul wrote to address in those letters to that, in the letter to that church, to those churches. Galatians 1.6 says this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In our passage, Paul and Barnabas are encouraging the people to continue in the grace of God. But we know from the book of Galatians that most of them didn't. They departed. After having first come to faith in the gospel, they departed from grace and sought their completion through the obedience to the law. And it's again, this idea of being justified or being righteous or good enough, even after receiving the gospel, they thought they can justify themselves by works of the law. And this is instructive for us because it shows us that if over time we aren't purposefully continuing in the grace of God found in the gospel, our hearts tend to drift. Listen, the gospel is not just what gets you in the door so that you can move on to bigger, better things. You can never outgrow grace. There's a tendency that when we leave grace, we replace it with law. We elevate law and look to our good works to make us feel good enough. We tend to do the exact same thing that happened here in Galatians, except we don't use the law of Moses to make us good enough. We tend to make up our own. It's subtle, but the most common way I see this playing itself out is we make up our own rules on how to be a Christian or how to be a good Christian. We figure out two or three or four or ten things that, that make us think to ourselves, if I do these things and don't do these things, I'm okay, I'm good enough. But what happens when we do that is that we give ourselves over to all kinds of sin after that. Because we've made a system to make ourselves good through our obedience to our own law. And that's where we get these crazy inconsistencies. If I can use an example from 1997. 12-year-old Josh would never walk into a warehouse music and steal a CD. But he would download the album from Napster, burn it onto a CD, and then sell that school the next day. And I just lost like 
all the college students because they have no idea what warehouse music is or Napster. <laughs> See, I knew stealing was wrong, but my personal law said it was fine as long as it wasn't from an actual store. Now an example from 2021. Feeling okay to type something on the internet that you would never say out loud. See, it's easy to justify yourself when you've created your own law. The grace in the gospel rescues us from this by reminding us that we've already been made good enough. And it sets our aim at something better, something higher, knowing and loving Jesus. And this produces a fruit of good works in our lives that our own law can't. So the exhortation from Paul and Barnabas is well suited for us to continue in the grace of God. That's why we preach it each week. It's because we need it. Let's get back to the text, verses 44 through 47. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was being spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God was be spoken to you, um, be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul and Barnabas were invited back the next week to continue speaking in the synagogue. But this time, there were way more people to hear them. This is, the indication, this is an indication that the news of Paul's sermon was being spread through the city during the week. Almost as if synagogue had been on Sabbath. <laughs> there was a massive crowd in place to hear Paul. And narratively, Luke is showing us reaction to the preaching of the word. First reaction, verse 45. Some of the Jewish people saw the crowds and were jealous. Now, there's reason to believe that the particular issue these Jewish people took offense to was the inclusion of the Gentiles in the benefit of the promise made to Israel. So it wasn't just a matter of Paul and Barnabas' popularity. It was a matter of the gospel's exclusivity or inclusivity in this case. The grace of God that was being universally offered was offensive to them. So when they showed up and they saw a large crowd that, as we'll read, was full of Gentiles, they were angry. And they publicly slandered and opposed Paul. But Paul and Barnabas took this opposition as the indicator that it's time to move on to the Gentiles. And upon hearing this, we see the second reaction to the word of the Lord, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord in as many as were appointed to, to eternal life, believed. The reaction here we see next is in the Gentiles is one of celebration. They were celebrating that they were included in God's plan of redemption. And Luke re records that as many of them were appointed to salvation, were saved. And I think the reason Luke is drawing our attention and speaking of salvation in these terms is to show that this public opposition did absolutely nothing to stop God's purposes. The next thing he says in verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. This tells us that the gospel has the power to penetrate any sphere that we bring it into. It's powerful in its purity and simplicity. So let's finish up verses 50 to 52. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. 
And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Some of the Jewish people here in the city incited some of the high-profile men and women to oppose Paul and Barnabas. And this created persecution that ended up with them getting driven out of the city. And I think if we were to read this like Paul read history, we can be confident that the reason they got driven out of this city is because God determined that their work there was done and it was time to move on. In spite of being driven out of the city, they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. I've only been kicked out of one place my entire life, and I can guarantee you that it wasn't with joy and the Holy Spirit. This response from Paul and Barnabas isn't normal. Here, opposition couldn't stop God's purposes, and it couldn't discourage his people either. In the face of opposition, the gospel progresses with joy. If I can say it plainly, it's texts like this that make me, make me wonder if we worry too much. I, I, I get it. There, there are a lot of things happening around us to worry about. There's a lot of opposition. But even in the face of opposition, we still see these disciples being characterized by joy. Do we worry too much about the liberties we might lose or the benefits that we might get taken away? Does it all just get us angry and depressed and scared and anxious? Do we, as believers in the sovereignty of God, allow our worry and our fear and our anxiety to quench our joy? Don't get me wrong. I don't want to be flippant and I don't want to be dismissive because some of these things are serious. Our joy should be a sober-minded joy, aware of the dangers around us, and on guard, and intentional, and wise, and there's a place for righteous anger, but we can be all of that and do all of that and still be marked by Holy Spirit joy in the confidence that our God's purposes will stand. And I, I want that for us. I want to be a people marked by joy, singing and worshiping with generosity and on mission, centered on the gospel, trusting in the providence of God. And I don't know how to do it outside of the grace of God. So let's pray for that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you, Lord, and I just really just want to steep in the goodness that you showed us in the gospel. Thank you for your salvation. I thank you for your sacrifice. I pray that we would stick in that, that we'd steep in it, that we would linger in it, and that it would produce joy. I pray, Father, that, that we would trust you as the providential God working through history to work through our lives to, to your good purposes, Father. I pray that we could trust and lean in that, Father. Pray for us as we leave here, Lord, amidst all the, the things that are swirling around us in culture, amidst, amidst all the opposition that we might find at home or at school or at work, that we would still be marked by joy, that your grace and your gospel working in us would produce an unshakable joy in the fact that our Father holds everything in his hands. Pray for these things, Father. I pray for us here, Father. I pray that, that you would lead us and guide us to bring the gospel, convinced of its power, to every sphere that we go into after this. We just wait for you to convert, wait for you to change people's souls, and wait for you to draw people to yourself. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.